And dear friends, we are in the middle of chapter 24. The goal today is to learn part two of the chapter. It's a bit of a longer chapter, no? So we are on page 181, and here's what we're doing. And dear friends, as I mentioned in previous classes, we are in the middle of a very long buildup of teachings. The Alter Rebbe is truly... There's a very big buildup here. The punchline is now. If you've made it this far, <laughs> this is the punchline. We got into a lot, a lot of different concepts here. The Alter Rebbe taught us, introduced us, in chapter 18, many chapters ago, to the concept of the hidden love. Every single Jew possesses a holy soul, and in that soul, there is a love, there is a bond with God, which simply you cannot ignore. The Jew cannot ignore that love. But it's a hidden love. It's generally hidden. Why is it hidden? We'll actually find out today. <laughs> it's a hidden love. But where you see that love most is when a Jew faces the ultimate test to deny the one God, bow down to an idol, and live or remain a faithful Jew and be killed. And says the Alter Rebbe, we know this from history, strong precedent that the Jew will not tolerate such an act of severance from God. A Jew can't tolerate that. A Jew can't handle that. And a Jew simply cannot engage, even in an empty act, that somewhat insinuates that they are bowing down to an idol, the Jew would rather be killed. The Jew would rather die. The Jew would rather jump into a fire. And the author says, I want to teach you how that hidden love, which usually we are not conscious of that love. That love is usually out of reach for all of us. Because how often do we t face such a test? The test of idolatry. Says the author, I want to teach you how you can access that love on a daily basis and how that love could inspire your daily behavior as a Jew. I want to make this relevant. And the author taught us a lot about this love. The author taught us a lot about the oneness of God. In chapter 24, in last class, which was a little bit of a rough class, right? It wasn't easy to digest. The Alter Rebbe wanted to teach us and condition us to start seeing every single act of transgression as equal. The Alter Rebbe taught us a very radical idea. There is no worse sin, there is no better sin. There's no lighter sin, <laughs> and there's no more grievous, grievous sin. They're all equally bad. Each one is an act of rebellion against God. Every single sin says the exact same thing. What does a sin say? When a Jew knows that God says, I don't want you doing this. Or I want you to do this. 
And the Jew says, all right, <laughs> I hear you. We're, we're processing your request, right? <laughs> and then what do we tell God? We've thought about it. The answer is no. You say, I, I shouldn't do this. I say, we're going to do it. Meaning nothing personal, God, but, you know, right now, please bug off. <laughs> I've got my own ideas right now. That every single son says that. Now, yeah, you could already start getting into the details. What did God ask you? But that, that doesn't matter. The details are, are irrelevant. Every sin is idolatry. Every single act of transgression is a Jew telling God, you are not the ultimate authority. You are not the only one. And maybe even worse, I've got no business with you right now. I went to shul this morning, but now please bug off. Right now, I'll live my life. See you a bit later. Every single sin says that. The author says every single act of transgression of a Jew is one and the same. They are all an act of rebellion, an act of denial of God. They remove yourself from the oneness of God. You now become a force in nature which is going in total opposition of God's will and desire which created the world. And that's it. Every single sin is that. Every single act of transgression is that. Now, dear friends, I want to start reading with you now. But I want to remind you something I told you last week. And last week you just had to believe me. Now you'll see it in the Tanya. Why is the Altar telling us this? Why is the Altar telling us this? Is the altar but trying to make us feel bad? <laughs> is the altar but admonishing us? Condemning us? You sin? Oh, let me tell you how bad your sin is. The tiny is not a book of condemnation. And frankly, what's the point of just telling a Jew how bad his sin that he did was? You know, <laughs> how's that productive? The altar is not here to condemn us. There's a reason why the Alter Rebbe is telling us this. And the Alter Rebbe is telling us this for a very beautiful reason. And I want you to realize that this, this chapter is unbelievably powerful. And may I even say, and I will say, positive. This chapter is positive. It's not here to speak about our sins and how bad we are. That's not, that's not the energy of this chapter. That's not the message of this chapter. Says the Alter Rebbe, now we could understand the key concept. Page 181. And dear friends, all of the buildup of the previous chapters, is this is the punchline. And this is the key message of this chapter, what we're going to learn right now. Part 2, the delusional spirit. Let's read. Says the Alter Rebbe, says the Tanya, and now we can understand the teaching of our sages on the verse, if a man's wife will go astray. And the Hebrew word for going astray is sister. Okay. There is a law, there's a, there, there's a grouping of laws in the Torah called the laws of a sota, the laws of a woman who was uh, disloyal, is that, the, is, that the word, is that the correct word, disloyal, uh, to her husband. And um, that's of course a very serious thing, and you know, there, there are laws that uh, apply to such a case. The way the Torah introduces this subject matter, 
is it says if a man's wife will go astray, sister. Okay. Says our sages, this is from the Talmud. And dear friends, I, I want to think, we have to really process what our sages say over here. Say our sages, a person will not commit a sin unless a delusional spirit, which in Hebrew is ruach shtus, enters him. Now, I want you to see this over here. If you go back to the verse, if a man's wife will go astray, we have the word sister. Sister, on the literal meaning, means she went astray. She went off the beaten path. Our sages say it could also mean go delusional. If a man's wife will go delusional. If a man's wife will go uh, insane. So our sages say, yeah, that's the nature of sin. A Jew will not sin and cannot sin unless some delusional spirit enters him. Now, let me ask you something. Let's be honest here, right? We all sin, right? <laughs> Can we be honest here for a moment? Let me ask you a question. Is it natural to sin? Talmud is saying it's unnatural to sin. A Jew will not commit a transgression. It's impossible. It's unnatural. You know why you do it? Some virus infects you. Some extraneous force enters into you and hijacks your better judgment. And, um, yeah, folly. Yeah, Leah, that's right. Folly, shtus. Yeah, that's right. Very good. You're familiar with the, uh, with the other Hasidic text, which is very much built on this concept of the Altar teaching us over here. But overcoming folly. Okay. Is for a Jew to commit a sin, is that delusional? No, that's just natural. We're all regular human beings, and we are tempted by things which are uh, desirous that we, see, that we perceive to be, you know, good and tempting, taste good, good experiences. And yeah, meaning, you know, the, the fruit of sin tastes good. The fruit of sin is tempting. And this, our sages say something which, which we really have to think about. No, it is unnatural to sin. You really naturally shouldn't ever sin. And the fact that we are capable of sinning is because the delusional spirit enters into us and messes with our judgment. What does that mean? How do we make sense of this? So says the author, but now we can know. When we now understand that every single sin is essentially an act of idolatry, every single sin is an equal act of rebellion, now we can understand this. Because really, for the Jewish soul, idolatry is, is an unquestionable option. The Jewish soul cannot commit idolatry. We would all rather jump into a, into a, into a furnace than bow down to an idol. We would happily give up our lives than to commit idolatry. Said, so how could it be that we sin? How could it be? Says the author, but oh, that's what our sages are telling us. It's the delusional spirit that infects us and makes us forget and lose touch with the love that we have for God. Says the author, but let's continue reading. For even someone at a low spiritual level, think about somebody a Jew who's at their weakest spiritual point, weakest, they have the weakest strength, the weakest resolve. 
For example, such as the very subject of the verse, such, such as a weak-minded adulteress. An adulteress, a woman who's married, she has a family. And for a few minutes of lust, for a few minutes of pleasure, she is willing to what? Put her whole life in jeopardy. Her marriage, her family, her children. Think about someone who's at a very weak point in life. They don't have any strong resolve. Weakness is overcoming them. An adulterous woman is the, is the best example for that, is the strongest example of that. So even such a person would have controlled her lustful urges were it not for the delusional spirit within her that covers, hides, and conceals the dormant love in her divine soul. What does this mean? Something comes and makes us literally forget and makes us lose touch. It desensitizes us of the love we have for God. Naturally, we love God. Naturally, it would be an impossibility for a Jew to commit a sin. What happens? A delusional spirit comes and overtakes us. And this is a very big subject that Chassidah speaks a lot about. It's something which happens the more that we uh, engage with the materialism of our world, it creates uh, uh, this, this materialistic energy that creates a barrier between us and the sensitivities of our soul. And therefore we start forgetting and losing touch and becoming desensitized to the love that we have for God. But naturally it would be an impossibility for us to sin. But this delusional spirit, a spirit of insanity, a foolishness, takes over our, our, our consciousness. The author explains, let's continue reading. For the dormant love desires to connect with the faith, with the unity and the oneness of God, and not to become detached from his oneness, God forbid. The love that we all possess in our soul, the dormant love, what does it deeply want? It wants to connect with God. It wants to connect with God's oneness, with the faith in God. It doesn't want to be separated from God. And if given a test of faith to worship idols, God forbid, this same adulteress would have resisted transgressing even at the cost of her life. At this very moment where she is so spiritually weak, where she is so morally weak, at this very moment she would choose death than to bow down to an idol. She would have even given her life rather than offer an empty bow to an idol in which she doesn't believe in at all in her heart. So if this woman is willing to die, is willing to lose it all, not to commit idolatry, says the author, then certainly then, let's follow the logic, certainly then she could overcome the temptation and desire for adultery, a sacrifice which is easier than suffering death. May God spare us. Very simple. Every single sin is idolatry. So says the altar, if every single sin is idolatry, then I've got news for you. The news is like this. Number one, it is not natural for you to sin. We think it's natural to sin. Oh, I need to control my natural desires in order for me to not sin. Says the altar, but no. It is unnatural for you to sin. How could it be that a Jew sins? This is what happens. A spirit of folly, 
a delusional spirit infects the Jewish the Jew, clouds our judgment, makes us think that this sin is not a big deal. It makes us forget that we truly love God. It makes us forget our own nature. It makes us short-sighted. We don't think long-term. And therefore that causes us to sin. Says the author Rebbe, but I want you to know you have the power within you to overcome this temptation. Let's think about it for a moment. What goes through our mind when a, you know, when a Jew sins? Why do they sin? Why do they sin? What do they tell themselves? You know, let, let, let's imagine a Jew who's religious, right? A religious Jew. Davins three times a day in a shul. Walks the walk, talks the talk, dresses the dress. But there's some areas of Judaism where he simply drops the ball. What does he tell himself? What do we tell ourselves? You know what we tell ourselves? We tell ourselves, you know what? Okay, I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough. It's a form of surrender. We, we submit to reality. What can I do? This is who I am. This is what, oh, this is what I do. You know, what, what do you want from me? I, do, I get things right. I get some things wrong. It's who I am. And it's basically a form of surrendering, saying, I'm not strong enough to put up with this fight. I'm not strong enough. Yeah, I know it's wrong. I, I'm not stupid. I know it's wrong. But I'm just not strong enough. Says the author, no, you are strong enough. You know how I know you're strong enough? Because you have enough power within you to pay the ultimate price. You would be willing to die at this very moment. Certainly then you have enough, you're able to pay the cheap price. You could definitely forego five minutes of pleasure. So the author says, stop thinking you're weak. You are so strong. Stop thinking you don't have the energy to fight the tough fights. You do. The only problem is that you think that, oh, idolatry I would never do, but this small sin, oh, not, not such a big deal. The author says, no, <laughs> this is idolatry, which means you have the power, you have the willpower, and you have the will to fight against it. You could stop yourself. It's not a big deal. For idolatry, what we ask of you is to give up your life. That's the ultimate price. Here we're asking you to literally wait five minutes. Let the temptation, let the desire flip away. And what the author ever wants to tell you is, know that you are strong. Stop thinking you are weak. Stop submitting yourself and surrender and saying, what can I do? I'm not strong enough. You are strong enough. And that's really the key message of this chapter. That there's no such thing that there's a sin that is stronger than a Jew. You are stronger than any weakness. The only thing is that we sometimes forget about it. You know why? That's the spirit of folly. And the altar is saying over here, it is not natural for a Jew to sin, and you deeply don't want to sin. Maybe you forgot about it. Maybe right now you don't feel it. I don't feel that I don't want to sin. I actually very much do want to sin. That's the delusional spirit. The Rambam says something unbelievable. You ready for this? Maimonides, 
And this is this is not a, a teaching of philosophy. Maimonides writes this in Jewish law. You ready for a little bit of Jewish law? Very fascinating piece of Jewish law. According to Jewish law, if a couple wants to divorce, the man must be the one to divorce. According to Jewish law, the husband is the one who must give the ketubah, the marriage contract, uh, which kick, which sets in, in effect the marriage. And if uh, for divorce to go into effect, the husband must be the one to give the divorce. Now, what happens if a husband does not want to give a divorce to his wife? The marriage is broken, the wife wants a divorce, and the husband, for whatever reason, usually it's like a power struggle, the husband says, no, I'm not, I'm not divorcing you. I'm not giving you the document, the get. We've got a little bit of a problem here. Because Maimonides rules, and according to Jewish law, a husband must willingly and with intent, intentionally, give that divorce. That's according to Jewish law. It has to be a, a, a willful act and an intentional act of the husband. What do you do here? The husband says no. What are you going to do? So Maimonides tells us, and it's literally the only rare time in Jewish law where uh, we resort to violence. Maimonides says, use whatever measure is necessary to get this man to give this divorce to his wife. So you don't, you, know, you don't go straight to the big guns. You start off with the small guns. Don't let him go into the synagogue. Don't let him use the community bathhouse. Don't honor him in the community. Apply pressure. If the pressure doesn't work, okay. If necessary, you can take him out to the back alley and do what you got to do. You want to beat him up? We can beat him up. A man doesn't want to give his wife a divorce? What are you doing here? So we'll beat him up. The Jewish court will beat him up. Until he says, stop it, I'll give the divorce. You know what the only problem is? What's the problem if you force the husband into giving a divorce? Is that a willful and intentional divorce? No. But Jewish law says it must be willful and intentional. <laughs> if he does it in duress because you're breaking his nose, you know, <laughs> come on, is that a willful divorce? Maimonides says yes, it's a good divorce. You want to know why? You want, Maimonides writes this in Jewish law because every Jew wants to do every mitzvah of the Torah which means it's a mitzvah for this man to give a divorce he really wants to do it his yetzer hara, his evil inclination is imposing upon him this fake uh, extraneous will saying I don't want to but deep down he really wants to You want because he's a Jew Every Jew wants to do a mitzvah. See, even though you have to force him to say yes, oh, but that's his real desire. <laughs> it's crazy. That's a law in Jewish law. It's a rule in Jewish law. Every Jew wants to do a mitzvah. It's not a theoretical concept. It's very, very real. So the altar says no sin is bigger than the Jew. A Jew is not weak. All a Jew has to remember is that they have this deep love for God, they deeply want to be connected to God. And uh, every single sin compromises that love. Every single sin touches that love. 
And the only reason why we don't feel it and sense it is because there's this extraneous, unnatural, and imposterous delusional spirit that comes and possesses us. And the altar says we need to speak the truth. We have to realize the truth. That is not the real you. And we have to see past the delusional spirit. Okay, top of page 182. Let's continue. And the altar says there's an additional point. <laughs> there's an additional delusion that we all delude ourselves with. What's the additional delusion? Let's read. She presumably makes a distinction in her mind between the prohibition of bowing to an idol and that of adultery, arguing that the latter is a far less severe transgression and is therefore tolerable. Okay, we all do this. What do we tell ourselves? Oh, this sin, that's a big deal. Oh, this sin, nah, that, that's, that's, that's no big deal. That's benign. You know, that sin, ooh, you're not a good Jew if you do that. Oh, this sin, yeah, that, that's, that's okay. This doesn't matter as much. You're still a good Jew even if you do that. It's not as offensive. <laughs> so we all kind of make these arbitrary measures. We create a spectrum. And it's, it's very, very, uh, it's, it's like a theory. You know, we, we, we make our own theory. Oh, this sin, big deal. This sin, small deal. This mitzvah is a big deal. This mitzvah is small, small mitzvah. Says the altar, and that whole type of calculation, that whole rationale, let's continue reading, this rationale is false. It is also from the delusional spirit of Klippa. The delusional spirit is also what caused you to come up with all these fake rationalizations. that tell you, oh, idolatry, that's a big deal. But the other little, this little thing, and not not such a big deal. That's delusional. That's not the truth. The truth is, if you could have a heart-to-heart conversation with your soul, if you can cut past the delusional spirit that possesses all of us, that we all suffer from, your soul would tell you, no, every sin is intolerable. Every sin is telling God, I am rebelling against you. Every sin is an act of idolatry. Says the author, let's continue reading, the delusional spirit obscures the divine soul's influence, but only up to the level of Chachma. That is up to, but not including Chachma. Oh. So we don't sense the love and the connection in our soul to God because of the delusional spirit. But the delusional spirit doesn't possess the entire soul. If you can get to the innermost point of the soul, the Chachma, which is the highest point of the soul, the delusional spirit does not infect. It doesn't possess. It doesn't cloud the judgment of Chachma of the soul. Says the Alter Rebbe, it can't obscure Chachma because of the divine light that is present in Chachmah, which enables Chachmah to see truth directly and reject all rationalizations, as mentioned above. So the altar says, oh, we have a delusional spirit, but the good news is that the delusional spirit does not have a total hold on you. It clouds the judgment of most of the soul. But if you get to the deepest point of the soul, there's one space in your soul 
where your soul is free. And therefore, we all have access to a space of truth inside of us, the Chachmah, where we can cut past, cut through the delusional spirit and sense the truth of our souls. And the altar concludes, but in actual reality, the idea that adultery is a more tolerable transgression is a delusional rationalization. It's totally false. Why? Because even with a minor transgression, the perpetrator violates the divine will. It doesn't matter what the sin is. What are you telling God? You're telling God, I am willing to violate your will. And is thereby detached completely from God's unity and oneness. You're telling God, I know you've created a world. I'm right now breaking off to do my own thing. And you are detaching yourself from God's unity and oneness even more than Sitra Achra and the Klip itself, which are referred to as other gods in literal idolatry. That's what we learned in the last class. There's a spiritual force that God created called Klipa, called Sitra Achra, called the spiritual energy of idolatry. And these are spiritual forces which create the sense of separation from God, of otherness from God. And we spoke in last class about how when a Jew chooses to sin, they become an even lower form of klipa than the spiritual klipa itself. Because klipa still always believes in God. The spiritual energy of klipa. The spiritual force of klipa. And it will never really go beyond what God allows it to do. But what is a Jew, what, what, what's a Jew saying essentially when they sin? They say, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in you. God is good in theory. In practice, I don't believe in you. <laughs> I'll do my own thing right now. That's what a Jew says when they sin. And you're going absolutely and completely against God's will. There's no lower form of rebellion. There's no lower form of idolatry than a person who sins. And this is the Altarab's point. Every single sin is equally horrible. Which means that every single sin touches the love that you possess. Which means that you have the power within you to overcome any sin, any temptation. And that's really going to be the point that the Altarab is trying to make with this chapter. And we're going to see this especially in the next chapter, chapter 25. Stop thinking you're weak. Stop thinking that you can't overcome a sin. You can. Start believing in yourself. Realize how much power you have in your soul. And start realizing how much you care. It's the truth. It's what's natural. The ultimate is telling you, just be natural. <laughs> just be natural. Right? Isn't that what they say in uh, today's world? Just be yourself. Just be natural. That's what the ultimate is saying. Be yourself. The real you, if you could get down to the core of who you really are, you love God. You want to be connected to God. And this sin is a direct compromise. You're directly damaging your bond with God. The only thing is we, that we forget that. We, we, we lose touch with, with that truth. So Alta says, so remind yourself. But really what the author is getting to is to empower us. The Altar is not trying to you know, beat us up for the sin we did today or yesterday. The Altar is empowering you for tomorrow. That when you face a challenge, that God wants you to do something, and you say, eh, I'm not in the mood. 
or God tells you, I don't want you to do this, and you say, eh, but I still want to do it, that you should empower yourself and say, no, I'm not going to do it. Or yes, I'm going to listen to what God wants of me. We should remind ourselves how much we care and how much power is inside the Jewish soul. That's, that's the empowerment the Atab is trying to give to us. Let's conclude today's class with the next section, where the Atab wants to underscore even more how serious and um, how grievous, right? is, that, is, that pronounced, is that correct? the correct tra- uh, pronunciation? How grievous or grievous? Grievous or grievous? I don't know. Someone's got to help me out over here. Grievous. Grievous. How grievous is every single sin? Thank you so much, Gail. What the author is going to do is, he's going to say like this. Not only is this Jew who is sinning, not only is he lower than the spiritual force of Klippa, He's even lower than the way Klippa is manifest in our world. So let me introduce introduce this to you for a moment. Everything in our world is powered by spiritual energy. And if there's something called Klippa in the spiritual realm, meaning there's a force which is anti-godliness, which is all about itself and is out of touch with God, and that's what we call Klippa, that becomes manifest in our world. Where does Klippa energy become manifest in our world? It becomes manifest in our world in um, one big example is in the animal animal life, in the animal kingdom. Animals which are not kosher are animals that their spiritual energy is Klippa. And even the very nature of animals, the very nature of animals, the way they act, the predatory nature, the venomous nature, the cruel nature, sometimes in animals, is itself a reflection of the negative energy of Klippa. So animals in this world, non-kosher animals, the reason why we don't eat non-kosher animals is because there's Klippa energy in these animals. And when we eat them, we now bring that negative klipa energy into our system, which is toxic, which is not good. And this is what our sages tell us. We want to preserve the goodness within a Jew, the spirituality within the Jew, the sensitivity within a Jew. And non-kosher food uh, messes around with the natural purity and goodness and holiness of a Jew because a non-kosher animal carries with it this Klippa energy. So the point is the animal is Klippa. Very good question, Evgenia. Yeah. We can get to that maybe later in the class, or you can look back at what we explained in chapter eight and uh, sorry, ch- chapter six and seven. We spoke specifically about that. Says the author of a Jew who sins is lower than the non-kosher animals which are the manifestation of Klippa in our world. You are even lower than that. Let's read. Bottom of page 182. And the author says, doesn't matter what the sin is. Every single sin causes this tremendous uh, damage and this level of distance and rebellion and separation from God that you're even lower than even the worst animal. Says the author at the bottom of page 182. 182. The transgressor is also lower than all those things in this world which are powered by Klippa. 
namely non-kosher domesticated and wild animals and non-kosher birds, insects, and reptiles. As the saying goes, page 183, as the saying goes, the mosquito preceded you. Okay, let me explain this to you. The Talmud says something very interesting. The Talmud says that if a Jew is ever arrogant and haughty, what we tell that Jew is, you should just know the mosquito was created before you. Which means the mosquito is greater than you. Which means not only was it cre- not only was it created uh, uh, earlier than you in time, it also exists on a higher level than you. It precedes you also spiritually. Now, there's something very very interesting. The Talmud says, or this is more an idea from from Kabbalah. The mosquito specifically is the lowest form of klipa that we could find in our world. The manifestation, the physical manifestation, or the physical representation of the lowest form of klipa is in the mosquito. Why is that? What's, what's so wrong with the mosquito? Well, it's either a mosquito or a gnat. The Hebrew word is a yitush. Yitush. Y-I-T-U-S-H. A yitush. A yitush is the lowest form of klipa. You want to know why? Says the Talmud, it's because a mosquito is all about taking in and it doesn't have a dedicated orifice for excretion. Now, I've never really studied the anatomy of mosquitoes or gnats, but this is what the Talmud says. Which means every every single animal usually has two separate compartments <laughs> in its anatomy. There are the there's the orifice and the uh, anatomical structure for intake, and there's also an orifice for excretion for ex- ex- excreting. A gnat doesn't have a separate orifice for excretion which means essentially it takes in it's not looking to give it's all about give me give me give me but i don't want to give anything in return the epitome of the clip experience is utter self-centeredness utter ego-based lifestyle it's all about me life is all about giving to me and i don't need to give anything in return since a mosquito doesn't even give anything back to society, doesn't give anything back to reality, what are, you, what are you contributing to the world? Nothing. I'm here to take from the world. I'm not here to contribute. That becomes the uttermost, most extreme version of klipa. Everything else in this world gives something, right? Even in science, right? Even excretion. An animal, an animal excretes. It gives off garbage. But you know what? There are some insects or animals that benefit off that garbage. And that garbage becomes fertilized, right? <laughs> it can become fertile fertilization. So at least it's giving something. It, it, it has some benefit to society. Some benefit to nature. The mosquito 
doesn't want to give off anything. It's not built to give. It's not built to release. Not even garbage. So says the Alter Rebbe. Let's continue reading. Meaning that even the mosquito, which is the most selfish creature of the animal kingdom, in that quote, it has an orifice for ingesting but not for excreting indicating that it is powered by the very lowest klipa and is distant from the power of holiness. For the hallmark of holiness is the opposite of selfishness, the willingness to give, even to those who are very far. Holiness is all about giving, giving. Holiness does, is not obsessed with its own ego. The hallmark of holiness is giving, generosity. It's not about me, it's about, it's about the cause. It's about a higher purpose. Kalipa is all about the ego. Give, 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 give me, give me. I don't want to give you. Give me. It's taking all for itself. I don't want to give anything in return. So the mosquito is the lowest form of Kalipa and says the author, but nevertheless, even this utterly selfish mosquito spiritually precedes and surpasses a person who transgresses in terms of how far down from the divine will it receives its life energy. You are even more of a descent in the moment of a sin, an even lower version of klipa. You are even further away from the divine will than even the worst animal. Why? We'll get to why in a second. And the ultimate says, if you're lower than a mosquito, then although more so is the transgressor lower than the other non-kosher animals, even wild predatory beasts. Why is that? The ultimate says it's very, very simple. For none of the animals deviate from their divinely allotted role. As the verse says, and their spirit preserves God's command. And although they are not conscious of it, their spiritual root has this awareness. You see, animals, no matter how evil they are, (laughs) no matter how predatory they are, an animal never goes against God's command for what it should do. There are some animals which display very cruel behavior, either in the way that they uh, prey on other animals. And some animals, like I remember reading once about a bird who is so cruel to its own children, preys on its own children and lets its own, its own, its own chicks suffer. Like just, can you imagine that? A bird, God created a certain bird which, which possesses such horrible nature. The author says, but I want to tell you something. When that bird acts that way, it is following the command of God, which told it, act this way. When a cheetah preys on an animal, the cheetah does that because God commands the cheetah, I want you to do this in my world. And the author says, although (laughs) the physical animal is not in tune with God's command, but the spiritual root, the spiritual energy, which is giving life to this animal, it is aware, it is in tune with God's command, and the spirit preserves God's command. Very interesting. There's a midrash. I'm trying to remember who it was about. I think it was with King Solomon. Either King David or King Solomon, but I believe it was King Solomon. King Solomon was once... um, 
was once walking, was once walking along a riverbed, and he was thinking to himself how much praise he says to God and how much praise he sings to God. And a frog jumped out of the river and tells King Solomon, you think you praise God, I praise God every single second of my life. He says, you praise God, I praise God more than you. That's what the frog said. Why? Because every croak that a frog makes, you know what it's doing? It is following the order of God. And God told the frog, go and croak. And every moment that the frog croaks, it is telling God, yes. It is praising God. So, take the mosquito. It's the lowest form of clip in our world. But you want to know something? The mosquito is following God's command. It's following the will of God. Could that be said about us? <laughs> Could that be said about us in the moment that we choose to transgress the will of God? We become lower than even the lowest form of clip in our world. Now, you know, you could ask an interesting question. Who said, who said that animals are following the will of God? Who said that? Maybe it's just their nature. <laughs> right? Why are you blaming an animal's nature on God? It's not God. They're just built to be a certain way. Who said that it's the animal following the word of God? So the author is going to prove it to you. The author is going to say, you know, if we look into the behavior of animals, we'll actually see that at some point nature cannot explain why animals behave a certain way. And the only way to explain it is that this is God commanding them to act that way. You know, the word in English, I looked it up, is called ethology. Ethology is a study of behavior of animals. So, you know, that's what we say. Every animal is created, exists with a certain nature, and it just follows the pattern, right? And a lion is going to be a lion, and a deer is going to be a deer, and just this is the way it's hardwired to act. Altavis says, no, it's God commanding them to act that way. That's why they act that way. How do we, how do we know this? It says Altavis like this, very interesting idea. As the verse states, bottom of page 183, as the verse states, and the fear and dread of you will fall on wild animals of the earth. This is something that God told Adam. When God creates Adam, Adam sees the whole world, he sees animals, and God says, I'm creating all animals to be scared of you. What's the obvious question? If God created animals to be scared of us, then how could it be that... uh, wild predatory animals prey on humans as well how could that be so Talmud explains let's continue reading and as our sages of blessed memory explained no wild animal has any power over a person unless he has sinned and therefore appears to it like an animal an animal will not touch a human being unless the human being looks like an animal As long as we retain our better judgment, our inner humanity, our godliness, the animals will be scared of us. When a person sins and looks like an animal, then the animal looks at you and sees another animal. And it says fear gain. (laughs) It's fear gain. But let's continue reading. But with tzaddikim, when it comes to righteous people, 
from whose face the divine image never departs. All wild animals are subdued in their presence. As stated in the Zohar concerning Daniel in the lion's den. Oh. The Bible speaks about this, about Daniel. And there's many stories within Jewish tradition that speaks to this idea. Wild animals don't touch a tzaddik. What happened with Daniel? Daniel was a very high-ranking officer, minister, in the Babylonian kingdom. There was a king, his name was Daryavesh, and he made a, a law that you're not allowed to pray other than to him, to the king. And Daniel, the Jewish prophet, was caught doing what? <laughs> Praying to God. So his punishment, says the book of Daniel, was to take Daniel and throw him into the lion's den. They had a den full of lions. They're going to starve the lions for a week. And these lions were starving and all they wanted was blood, right? They, all they wanted to do was rip apart. The second they smelled meat, they went wild. They took Daniel, they threw him into the lion's den. And they were sure that within 30 seconds, nothing's going to be left besides bones. You know what happened? The second Daniel descended into the lion's den, the lions took one look at him. They all calmed down. And they, uh, they kneeled in front of him. And they respected him. They gathered around him. They kneeled. They licked his feet. That's all. They couldn't believe what's happening. The Zohar says that wasn't miraculous. So you read the story. What do you think? Oh, it was a miracle. God saved Daniel. The Zohar says, no, 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 no. It wasn't a miracle. <laughs> that was natural. Animals don't touch humans. Unless the human starts looking like an animal. If you act like an animal, then an animal will prey on you. What the author is saying is, the animal only prays when God gives them permission to pray. When God doesn't give the animal permission to pray, the animal doesn't. You can't explain naturally why the animal wouldn't touch Daniel, why the lion wouldn't touch Daniel. Right? The science of ethology can't explain that. The Talmud gives another, another example of this. A, a more common example of where we would see that animals fear the human, the Talmud says like this. The Talmud says you have to be very, very careful. A dead body, right? There's many laws in Judaism that a dead body, we have to be very careful to preserve the integrity of the body. We treat the body of a deceased very carefully in Judaism. So according to Jewish law, you have to be very, very careful that in the period of time from when death occurs to when you bury the body, keep make sure no rodents get close to the body. Because rodents could come and start wanting to, to chip away at the flesh of the body. And we don't want that to happen. But the Talmud tells us, but don't worry about a baby. A rodent will never come and touch a baby. Which is an amazing thing. The Talmud says this, a little baby, a mouse is scared of a little baby. If it's living. But if it's dead, it could be the greatest giant and the rodent has no fear. How do you explain that logically? You have a little baby who's sleeping soundly and a rodent will not touch that baby. That's what the Talmud says. Today, you know, we have ways to keep rodents out of our houses. Back in the day, right, rodents was a part of life. You have rodents in the house. <laughs> a baby, a rodent will not touch a baby. A dead body, be very careful. What's the difference? Talmud says, 
An animal is, has fear of the human because that's what God commanded them. Naturally, science cannot explain that phenomenon. The science of ethology cannot explain why a rodent won't touch a little baby. The Alphabet says this is proof that animals are following the command of God. But the Alphabet says, if so, if so, top of page 184, if so, then a person who sins, violating God's will, through even a minor transgression, is at that moment at the furthest distance from God's holiness, meaning his unity and oneness, more than all the non-kosher animals, insects, and reptiles, which are powered by the sitra achra and the klipa of idolatry. No sin is not a big deal. Every sin is a big deal. And therefore what? Therefore, says the author, but therefore you have the strength to overcome it. Therefore, you have the strength to say, I will not tolerate it. Every single sin is like idolatry. If you are willing to, to die for idolatry, says the author, but I've got a good deal for you. All you need to do is abstain for five minutes of a little, a little, a little temptation. You don't need to die, just five minutes. That's easy. That's, that's a small price to pay. You have the power to do that. And what the Yatavah did was show you how every single sin touches upon the unity and the oneness, the belief of the oneness of God that our soul is willing to die for. And therefore the Yatavah says, every sin is idolatry. And you have the power to stand by every single sin because of that reason. And the Yatavah says, I want you to remember that. I want you to empower yourself and stop telling yourself that I'm weak, that I can't help myself, it's who I am. Stop submitting to failure. Stop surrendering to failure. If you just learn a little bit about the nature of the hidden love, you could realize that every single moment is a critical moment for that hidden love. And all you need to do is remember that. And that itself will inspire you to make good choices and stay away from bad choices. And dear friends, with that, we conclude for tonight. Next class will conclude the chapter. And um, chapter 25 is a beautiful closing to this whole subject. Very, very powerful chapter. And then we'll to cha- chapter 26 is a brand new, brand new theme in Tanya. And upward and onward, I want to thank you all so much for joining. And all have a wonderful night. May God bless you all. What a pleasure to learn with all of you. Is a transgression the same as a sin? Yeah. Okay. So it sounds better, actually. Transgression <laughs> sounds better? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all semantics, huh? Yeah. But, and so the other thing is... You have to package okay. it nicely for so, the audience. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you know? Because, you know, you remember how it's like, I think it was, um, was it Joe Bear? See the one that said when his father read the curses, it didn't sound like curses? Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It's that same sort of thing, you know? Okay. So the other thing is, so is it worse? Okay. I'll just give this as an example on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Say you're Shomer Shabbat and then you accidentally turn a light on. Okay. All right. You didn't realize it, but is it worse because you should know not to do that and you should be more conscious of it or 
right? Doing a yes. sin, doing a sin by mistake is a whole different category. Um, and that really is different because there's, there wasn't a conscious, it's a separate discussion. And it's a lot more nuanced. You know, the one you can say, you did it by mistake. It's not your fault. Um, the main thing we're talking about here is somebody who willfully transgresses. They know that God said no, and you're like, you know, but eh, I'm just too tempted by it, so I'll just do it. It's not that big of a deal. You know, God, nothing personal. <laughs> you know, but, uh, today wasn't a good day for me to not transgress, but don't worry, I still like you. <laughs> that, it's that attitude the altar is talking to when, when we know we shouldn't be doing this. And we do it anyways because whatever, you know, we're weak. And we submit to weakness. And we let weakness become habitual, right? 